Chapter 11 The day the SWAT team confronted me at Clotine's apartment, stuck fingers in my face, and raced to the psychiatric hospital to arrest her came a few days after I had waved goodbye to Clotine at the hospital. That night, just a few hours after the whole SWAT team ordeal, Mark got home from work, and I told him what had happened. The guns like beauty pageant sashes, the deaf building manager and his echoing interpreter. When I was done with the story, Mark's first concern was whether I would be after money to help pay for my mom's defense. I'm not paying for this, he said, ready to engage in an argument. But the argument never came. I saw the space, the opening into a cavernous well into which I would regularly dive to get him to see, to stop attacking and start empathizing, the space where I would feel attacked and appalled and deeply offended that he would ever think that I would be after him for money when I had done so much for him. The space into which I would plunge and talk and talk until he would finally, one day, get it. But instead of diving into that well, I stayed on solid ground, dry land. I let the space remain, but didn't dive into it. It was suddenly obvious to me that all that thrashing around would never change the fact that he had no comfort to offer me. I couldn't make Mark see anything. I couldn't make him want to stay married to me. I couldn't make him stop hoarding or start acting differently or thinking differently. I started to see I wasn't in charge of fixing him. That night, I packed my things. These days, it's become more and more common to chirp, you got this at someone whenever they're facing a difficult situation or a struggle. You got this. It's meant to be a show of support, I guess. But I hate you got this. I hear in it the dismissal of the entire uncomfortable fact that sometimes we are just in a shitty situation. And once we get there, it sucks. And we don't know if it will change. My whole life though, I realized I had been telling myself you got this. I could handle whatever came my way. That I had to fix each thing that was wrong in every relationship I was in. And if I couldn't, then I knew I could always cut it out of my life, abandon it. That's what I'd done over and over again. Cutting out relationships when they got too hard or hurt too much. Looking back now, that night I came home to Mark, our marriage had already been disintegrating for years, for as long as we had been married. I had tried one thing after another. I didn't want to admit defeat. Much more urgently, I didn't want to be alone. But that night, I realized I wasn't admitting anything. I was just, for the first time, seeing what was in front of me. I could not fix my relationship with Mark and I couldn't make him want to stay married. I emotionally threw my hands up. I am powerless over this situation, and I can't manage this alone. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. That's step one of Alcoholics Anonymous. Maybe I'd been paying closer attention in the AA meetings than I'd realized, because that night something clicked. I had understood for a long time that our marriage was dysfunctional, 
But when I admitted I didn't have the power to make Mark want to work with me and fix it, that was the moment when I was willing to let go. Cooperate with Mark's request for a divorce. Hey, sissy. My sister Michelle picked up the phone. Growing up, she had always dreamed of having a sister. Can I stay in your extra room until I get a place of my own? It won't be long. Yeah, when do you want to come over? She didn't need to think about it. She wanted to be there for her sister. I started packing immediately. I let go of Mark and followed a hunch that took several more years to put into words. I took my first step away from an inevitable relapse and toward recovery from alcoholism. I still hadn't admitted I was powerless over alcohol, but I had seen I was powerless over something, something I'd been trying to control for a long time. My relationships, my alcoholism, my watching Clotine get charged with aggravated arson, they all required me to sit with my intense discomfort over the fact that I didn't know how to fix any of it. Fix Clotine? How could I fix Clotine after a lifetime of trying? Since I'd stopped drinking in 2014, my relationship with my daughters didn't improve, but at least it stopped getting worse. Throughout the worst of my alcoholism, they never cut off contact with me, but they also were understandably wary of me. They didn't proactively reach out because I'd hurt them too many times but they would meet up with me when invited, and they still spent some of their time with me on holidays. We started getting lunch together once every month or two. They always made sure that they were both together at every lunch. We kept our conversations superficial. I told them about the latest new website I was working on. They'd catch me up on their lives or the goings-on on their dad's side of the family. We stayed away from anything conflictual. At first, they didn't mention that Clotine had been calling them, but eventually Barbara told me about the calls a few months before Clotine set the fire. Something's wrong with Grandma, she said, matter-of-factly. Oh yeah, I asked, what's going on? She keeps calling me at night, asking if me or Rachel is there, she said. Like there at her place, I asked. Yeah, like in her building. She says she can hear us talking with her neighbors. What do you tell her, I asked. I tell her I'm at home in bed, she said. She's been calling a lot. I just quit answering. She's been calling me too, I said, but not that much. She thinks her neighbors are in a gang. We both laughed at that vision of her elderly neighbors many of whom needed walkers to get around the building. So our relationship had been thawing all throughout 2014, and they knew Grandma was acting even more weird than usual. Soon after Clotine was discharged from the hospital, I called Barbara because I needed help. Hey, you answered the phone, I said when Barbara answered. I had just landed a consulting contract that required me to be out of town for a few days. But Clotine had a court appointment on one of those days. Will you take Grandma, I pleaded. It's important. She can't get there alone. No, Barbara said. What's going on, I asked. Are you sure? No, I don't know what I have going on. 
What? I said, shocked. Why can't you do this for me? I don't want to. Grandma and I are not that close, she said flatly. I can't believe you won't do this. This is your family, I said, as if I had pulled out an ace in my pocket. No, she wouldn't drive Grandma there. No, she wouldn't drive Grandma anywhere. No, she wouldn't call Grandma. I hung up, furious. I made other arrangements for Clotine that day, but I resented Barbara for saying no to me. How could she do that to me? Now I see it differently. I see something that Barbara was showing me, even though she didn't know it. She didn't have to help me. She didn't have to help me help Clotine. I came to realize that Barbara is not me. She was living her own life, making her own choices. I didn't have to understand her or approve of her for her to have her own life or for her choices to be valid. She was showing me how to be an adult woman who didn't owe her mother anything, which meant that I didn't have to help Clotine either. I was helping my own mom because I chose to help her. I wasn't even sure that I wanted to help her. It was a choice, but I hadn't treated it that way. I'd acted as if I had no choice. It was a mindless reflex. As a child, I was the victim of Clotine's capricious, impulsive, incomprehensible mind. Was I still a victim? My helping her deal with the consequences of untreated schizophrenia was a choice, and it had been my choice ever since I'd moved out at 18 years old. I'd moved out, but I'd still felt responsible for her from the moment in 1988 when I shoved all those boxes into Tim's car until this moment 26 years later when Barbara stood up to me. From then on, I treated my involvement in helping Clotine as a choice. Even when I sacrificed time and money to get her to court dates and appointments, I reminded myself I was doing it because I wanted to. She wasn't making me. I wasn't doing it because I had to. God knows I wasn't doing it because she deserved the help. Barbara hadn't given in to the pressure of a sense of obligation that I was forcing on her. I didn't have to give in to that pressure of obligation either. Barbara helped me realize, too, that it was okay to admit to myself that Clotine didn't deserve my care. She hadn't earned it. She'd put me through so much my entire life just by virtue of the fact that I was her daughter. But I chose to show up for her anyway. Clotine waved goodbye to me at the hospital the day she checked herself in, not knowing what would happen or whether or not I would really come back. But I did go back. I went back almost every day with news about Tiny and about my daughters and listened to her talk about her roommates and the difficult routine she had to follow. After she was released from the hospital and every day in the months that followed, I checked in with myself regularly. Do I want to help Clotine with this? I would ask myself. I kept asking it over the endless weeks of her court hearings. As we emptied our pockets and walked through the metal detector, do I want to help Clotine? As I would sit with her, waiting for her lawyer and the prosecutor to do their lawyerly dance, do I want to help Clotine? 
Do I want to help Clotine? I asked myself over and over for nearly a year until a plea bargain was finally reached. Through that year, from the time she set the fire to the time when she finally reached a deal and was put on probation, she became very fragile. The schizophrenia medication was making her rapidly lose weight. When she left the hospital, the amount of physical space she took up shrank, and not just because of the weight loss. Before the fire, she used a bulky walker with a built-in seat and a basket. She would put Tiny in the basket and tour around her building. But after she got out of the hospital, she stopped using the walker. She took up as little space as she could with her body. Her movement and her thinking slowed considerably. She couldn't remember how to do simple things that she'd previously had no trouble with. At first, I found this frustrating. I wasn't ready for this new dullness. Whatever else she'd been, she'd always been sharp. She'd always been a learner. But now it felt like she wasn't trying, like she wasn't willing to engage. I got her a cell phone, and it took her ages to learn how to use it to make outgoing calls. Of course, that might be typical of some older adults, but it hadn't been typical of Clotine before the hospitalization. I took her to the grocery store, and on the walk from the parking lot to the front door, she hooked her arm into mine as though she needed that support. That was also new. She seemed all around older than her 74 years, simultaneously more frightened and more detached. And even with this new fragility, I knew I had to enforce limits and boundaries that it had never before occurred to me to enforce. I was not willing to go broke to pay for her defense. I was not going to take her to appointments that I simply couldn't get to, even if that meant she might miss one or two. I knew that meant I might have to watch her go to prison and die in prison. Maybe that sounds dramatic, but for many months, her case felt almost intolerably uncertain. What's gonna happen? After the visit from the SWAT team, I couldn't write off her fear of prison as coming from her paranoia and nowhere else. The possibility of her having to serve time was real. The day after the SWAT team came, I called the detective that handled Clotine's case. He explained to me that the district attorney's office was charging her with a first-degree felony. First-degree as in murder, rape, and aggravated arson. He told me that the day after I'd brought Clotine in for booking, he'd had a meeting with the county prosecutor who had ripped him a new asshole for not taking Clotine into custody right away. He claimed the county prosecutor then insisted on a first-degree felony charge based on the report. Felony one means immediate arrest, he explained. If you're not in jail already, we come get you. I started to realize just how much trouble Clotine was in. If she was convicted, she faced major prison time. As a fragile 74-year-old, she would die in prison. She'd set fire to someone else's residence in a senior housing community. It felt infinitely empty to say something like, 
don't worry, Mom, it'll be fine, and pat her on the back the way I did all those years ago in Phoenix when her money was stolen from her purse or when she saw my biological dad drive by in his white Cadillac when I was 15, or when she rushed over to our house in a cab to find me and make sure I was all right and Mark answered the door. My reassurance calmed her down, but it didn't fix anything. For the first time, just like I'd realized with Mark, I realized with Clotine that I didn't know if everything was going to be okay. She ended up staying at the hospital for almost a month before being discharged. The SWAT team visit to the hospital made the staff extra vigilant, and they didn't want to let her go until they were sure they could detect no signs of violence. She had so many appointments once the hospital discharged her. Court dates, psychiatric appointments, evaluations, community mental health, doctor's appointments, so much to do. Yet whatever I could do, I could not prevent Clotine from going to prison. I had a few thousand dollars to spend on her defense, but that was it. If a prosecutor wanted her to go to jail to await trial or to get convicted, even die in prison, I couldn't do anything about that. She had, after all, set the fire. She didn't have innocence on her side. What she did have on her side was her little old lady innocent demeanor. But would that be enough? Just as it had with Mark, my brain flashed the thought, what if I just stopped? What if I just stopped trying to fix it, to contain it, to make it so Clotine was okay? She wasn't okay. The doctors were telling me that. Her arrest was telling me that. My daughter Barbara was telling me that. She wouldn't be involved in fixing and patching up and holding things together. Maybe I shouldn't try to do that either. Maybe I couldn't, even if I wanted to. I don't got this. <laughs>